This is the Scott Bradley Show podcast. Many of you, maybe most of you, but certainly many of you by now will be aware of the great debate of our age. Laurel or Yanni? If you don't know what I'm talking about, let me fill you in. If you do, as I say, you just stick around. But if you don't, someone posted a sound clip on the internet a few days ago. And when people listen to it, some say that the computerized voice that you're listening to says Laurel. Others say that it says Yanni. They don't sound anything alike. Laurel and Yanni are two completely different words. And yet people on both sides are swearing that they hear the other word. Let me play the clip for you so you can hear this. If you've never heard this before, if you've already heard it, you're already in one of the camps or another. But if you have never heard this, listen closely and in your mind decide, do you hear Laurel or do you hear Yanni? Laurel. 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 Okay, did you hear Laurel or did you hear Yanni? Now, here is something that is very weird. Until Ben just played that, I had heard it 30, 40, 50 times. And every single time I had heard Yanni. When Ben played it just now, I heard Laurel. I can't even explain what's going on anymore. Anyway. This, for me, becomes a huge brain bender that I am completely confused by. It doesn't make any sense at all. So let me bring in an expert who is a professor in the Department of Psychology, Neuroscience, Behavior, and the Department of McMaster University's Auditory Development Lab. I didn't plan this by her first name. It just works out this way. Laurel Trainer. thanks for doing this today. Oh, thank you. I'm glad to be here. I'm assuming that when you listen to this with your first name, you must hear Laurel. Indeed, I do hear Laurel, yes. <laughs> um, before we go through to try to explain, because so many people are on one side or the other, and, and the funny part about this is so many people, when they hear it, they say, come on, you're having me on. You don't really hear something else. You're just playing a joke on me. Before we get there, though, can we walk through for a few minutes here about the process of how we actually hear things? Because I think that's where this thing is going to start. How does our body actually take a vibration that starts from somewhere in the air and translate it into something that we understand as a word or a sound or music or something? Yeah, well, we hear with our ears initially, and then the, the signals go from there up into the brain where we interpret them. Uh, and one of the main uh, parts of the peripheral ear is the cochlea. And in the cochlea, uh, when a sound comes in, it innervates the cochlea along its length at different places according to the frequency or the pitch of the sound. Now, most sounds have many frequencies uh, that uh, they're made up of. So whether you hear Yanni or whether you hear Moral, both of those words uh, contain low frequencies, middle frequencies, and high frequencies. And so that's sort of the first bit of processing that um, your auditory system uh, does. And so the difference, if you hear Yanni or you hear Laurel, it basically depends on how sensitive you are to different frequencies in the, the sounds that you hear. So is this something that is going to be different regardless for every different person, or are these things that you're talking about, the ability to hear frequencies and those, are, are those depending on gender? Are they more one or the other, or age, or anything along those lines? Yeah, it certainly depends on age. So as we get older, well, we suffer from hearing loss. I think that most people know that. 
Um, but what you might not know is that you lose the higher frequencies first, and you maintain uh, better sensitivity to the low frequencies. So someone, the, the older we get, the worse we get at hearing the higher frequencies. And so in this particular case, and I'm not sure which is the higher frequency, Yanni or Laurel, uh, but whichever one would be the higher one, would that then lend to the belief that if you are an older person that you would be more likely to hear Yanni, which would have the more lower frequency? I would, I would certainly predict that. Uh, we haven't studied it. <laughs> it just came out a couple of days ago, but sure. that certainly would be my prediction. But that's uh, across the board. Generally, as you get older, if your hearing depletes a little bit, you would be more able to still pick up the lower frequencies as opposed to the really high ones. That's correct. Yeah. Uh, is there any? Are there any differences gender-wise? Are there any differences with any other factors that would go into your hearing ability? Yeah. Well, everybody's hearing is a little bit different, um, but uh, in general, you know, for most stimuli, we would perceive them quite similarly. Uh, the The special thing about this stimulus is that um, the the sounds that are in the sort of laurel part of the the stimulus they have the predominantly L and R sounds, and those sounds have a lot of low frequencies in them. So if you're more sensitive to the low frequencies, you'll tend to hear laurel. However, yani, the y and the e, uh, tend to have a lot of high frequencies in them. So if you're more sensitive to those, you'll pick up the high frequencies better than you're picking up the low frequencies. And then those signals uh, get sent you know, to the brain, to the, the auditory cortex, and that's where, you know, once you get into cortex, that's where the brain figures out what the word is that you're, that you're hearing. And so if you're more sensitive to the high frequencies, you're going to hear Yanni. And if you're more sensitive to the lower frequencies, you're going to hear Laurel. You're listening to The Scott Radley Show. Weeknights from 6 to 8. Only on 900 CHML. Laurel. 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 Well, what did you hear? This is what we're talking about, the Laurel Yanni great debate. Families fist fighting over the well, I don't know if they're doing that. I hope not. But some people hear in that when that is played, some people hear Laurel. And others of you hear Yanni. And if you hear whichever one you hear, you are not able to believe that people hear the other, but it's absolutely true. We're chatting with Laurel Trainer, who is the head of the auditory development lab at McMaster about this. And Laurel, what struck me, and I don't know if you heard when I was bringing the, starting this segment, all along when I've been hearing this, I heard Yanni. Every single time I heard Yanni. And now that I'm in the studio and I've got headphones on and the sound, I guess, is going through the system, I heard Laurel. Does that make any sense that the auditory equipment that is being used could change the, the resonance or change the pitch? Yeah, no, it absolutely does because if you have um, a poor... Um, earphones or, or speakers, they're not going to uh, deliver all of the frequencies equally. So if you're uh, listening under a better sound system and you're now hearing low, it probably means that you're getting the low frequencies um, coming through louder. And that's why your perception has changed. It's interesting because over the last couple of days, I've just spent uh, too many hours, more than I would care to, researching because I wanted to buy a pair of decent headphones. And I've been listening to reviews and watching videos of people on these ones I was looking at. And some people 
have been saying these are the greatest headphones they've ever worn and it's fantastic and the sound is rich and I get all the register and other people with the exact same headphones have been saying, no, they're kind of mediocre and I don't get all of it. That now sounds to me more like we're getting back to the cause of this whole discussion we're having, that it's the ears of the people, not necessarily the headphones. Yeah, I'm sure that that's true. So different people, we can we can measure how sensitive you are at detecting sounds at different frequencies, and everybody's profile is a little bit different. And so what that means is that when you hear a sound and when I hear a sound, the timbre of that sound is going to be a little bit different. It would suggest that if you are going to buy any sound equipment, though, ever, or something like that, that maybe you just have to listen yourself. You can't take other people's word for it. I, yes, that's the best thing. Listen yourself. Um, and if you have a substantial hearing loss, you should uh, think about uh, getting uh, checked out and, and getting hearing aids so that actually some of those frequencies could be restored to a level that you used to hear perhaps when you were younger. All right. Uh, back to this, though. Is, have you ever heard of something like this before? Is this a commonplace thing that the same sound or the same word will be misinterpreted or differently interpreted by different people? Uh, there are other auditory illusions uh, out there. I think what's unique about this one is that um, people really, you know, under the same equipment, really hear it one way or the other. And, and with many illusions, you can kind of switch between them. This one you can't. Uh, if you're hearing Yanni, you can't sort of make yourself hear the, the laurel part of it. Um, so it's a very, very compelling um, uh, illusion. That's what you call, I mean, is that what this is called, is an auditory illusion? Well, it's an illusion in the sense that that you're not hearing the full stimulus, because the stimulus has both Yanni and Laurel in it, in a sense. But your brain is interpreting it as one or the other, right? So I don't think anybody's reported hearing both at the same time. Uh, So your brain, so that's sort of the, the periphery gives the information, sort of encodes the information as best it can, you know, through the cochlea in the ear. But it's your brain that interprets what is that sound. So if you, had, because, if you had the perfect equipment, though, if you could somehow put this through the world's best sound equipment, would you hear both? No, no, you wouldn't, because your brain doesn't believe <laughs> that it could be both at the same time. It believes it's one or the other. So, um, so that's where uh, your perceptual system, the higher-level perceptual system, comes in. And so, for example, as it turns out, uh, ironically enough, my name is Laurel. So I hear the word Laurel many times every day. So my brain is primed to hear Laurel. And I'll probably think lots of stimuli sound like Laurel that might be sort of close to Laurel. Uh, so it's probably going to be very hard for me to hear that sound as Yanni. But someone who never hears the, the word Laurel, their brain is not primed for that word. And so they're probably more likely to interpret it as Yanni. So we have these sort of long-term experiential factors that wire up our brain, and that affects how we interpret the sound that, that's coming in. We only have 30 seconds, unfortunately, but does this, could this affect music as well? I mean, we've known forever that different generations, younger kids like certain music, older people like different music. Could this somehow translate into that, that it's what you're able to hear, the sounds you're able to pick up that could have some kind of impact on that as well. I believe that's true. Yeah, absolutely. So if you're not hearing the higher frequencies, you're going to hear the music differently and that might affect your preferences. It's not the only thing that's going to affect your preferences, but it certainly plays a role. 
Laurel Trainer from the Auditory Development, head of the Auditory Development Lab at McMaster. Really appreciate you shedding some light on this today. Thanks so much for your time. Oh, my pleasure. It is, uh, it is one of the great mysteries. Again, I, I heard this and I swore that people were having me on, that there, it said Yanni and there was no chance, there was no chance that it could be anything else. There was no chance that it could be Laurel. And then other people said, no, it's Laurel. And I just heard Laurel when I played it. Ben, do you have it queued up? Let's play it one more time. As you're going out, what do you hear? Do you hear Laurel or do you hear Yanni? Laurel. 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 All right. Now you can fight with your family about what you heard. You're listening to The Scott Radley Show. Weeknights from 6 to 8. Only on 900 CHML. How was this music not blaring out from loudspeakers all over the city today as the helicopters were flying over? This would have been perfect. You wake up in the morning and the choppers are with the ride of the Valkyries from Apocalypse Now. See, that's how you build a city's image. Let's turn us into something like that. Anyway. You know that last night we mentioned right off the top of the show that the military was doing some training exercises over the city of Hamilton. It continued today. They had the helicopters going back and forth. They were going late last night, apparently. I I didn't hear them where I was, but people downtown, apparently, they were going quite late. And you know what? Terrific. I would rather have a, and again, I mean, I know I'm speaking as someone who wasn't affected by it, but nonetheless... I would rather have a couple nights with helicopters flying overhead and the military preparing for, I'm not necessarily saying a military strike, but for something that we may need them, I would rather have them prepared. And if it means a couple nights of flying helicopters over town, sure, why not? No problem. Bring it on. But today, and you probably caught this in the news that Rick Zamperin read just before we started the show tonight. Uh, today, the exercises stopped rather suddenly. And did you hear why the exercises stopped? Why our military choppers and exercises were grounded? Did you hear this today? Because somebody called and complained that four baby peregrine falcon chicks on the ledge of the Stelco Tower were freaking out. They were going nuts. The baby chicks were losing their minds because of the helicopters that were going by. And so, according to Captain Jamie Donovan, it was, quote, it was determined almost immediately, given this new information provided to us by a concerned citizen, that we would terminate any further training. Now, a couple things. First of all, doesn't say who the concerned citizen was, but it was not the senior monitor of the Peregrine Project who said... They didn't complain. The people who monitor these birds, they didn't complain. They didn't see a problem with the helicopters. They were watching the webcam footage of the birds, and they didn't seem stressed. So the people who are actually experts in peregrine falcon stress behavior say, no, they were fine. But some busybody decided that he was going to, and I don't even know, like credit to the guy who did this, or the woman, I think it was a guy from reading it. 
I don't know what number you call to get a hold of like the military stop their action hotline. What number do you call to get in touch with the military person to say, cease everything? He figured it out. I mean, good for him, I suppose, for being creative. But the fact is we didn't have a problem or we didn't bring the military choppers out of the sky last night because people were kept awake. Even though, as I say, I don't have a problem with that. People, well, we don't care about the people. They can't sleep too bad about the people, but some falcon chicks, allegedly by a non-expert who may or may not have even seen these birds, decides that these birds are in a state of flux and we have to stop the whole thing and the stand-down order is given. I mean, just all I could think of today when I when I heard this was, imagine how this is going to play when the day comes that Canada is ever attacked. Someone is going to call the Canadian military as the missiles are flying in and say, no, no, hey, guys, guys, no, no helicopters, all right? The chicks are, are stressed right now. We can't go airborne to defend ourselves. The, the, the butterflies native to Coot's Paradise are showing signs of being distressed. No military action. It's crazy. I'm just, or someone's going to, oh, you know what, Mr. Military Person, yet yeah, my pet gerbil is acting funny. The noise, I think it is. Can you stop the helicopters? And, and maybe if you get a chance, drop by with some sort of rodent therapist and maybe some really relaxing music by Enya so I can bring my gerbil back to good health. How do we stop Canadian military training exercises for four bird chicks? That This is nonsensical stuff. This is absolutely bonkers stuff that we have reached a point in our society when something that is pretty important, you would think, that we want to have a safe place to live, that four chicks that are actually probably showing no evidence of being stressed are cited as being stressed, and therefore we can shut down a military operation. We have lost our minds. Worse than that, worse than that, think about this for a second. Imagine if we could reanimate, bring back to life the men, and they were, I think, all men. I don't think there were any women. I, In fact, I'm positive there weren't. But imagine we could bring back all the men who died on Vimy Ridge, who died on Juneau Beach, and we said, yeah, you know, the military people who are trying to follow in your brave footsteps, who are trying to keep our country safe, yeah, they, um, their exercises were shut down because of four baby birds today. They would think we were out of our gourd. Or worse. Or worse. Come on, people. I'm not anti-bird. I'm not pro-animal cruelty. But come on. This wasn't even someone working with the birds. This was just some Joe Schmo who decided to stick his nose in somewhere. Come on. We got to be better than this. If the birds are really stressed, let the experts say they're really stressed and then fly the helicopter somewhere else maybe. I don't know. But come on. This is embarrassing. You're listening to The Scott Radley Show. Weeknights from 6 to 8. Only on 900 CHML. If you've been paying attention at all, to the discussion around Hamilton over the years, among one of the discussions anyway, is affordable housing. This is a this is an issue here. It's an issue a lot of different places. But certainly it is an issue within the Hamilton area. Uh, prices have been so high in housing for so long, 
There are those who criticize gentrification. There are those who say that it's just out of reach of most people. There's all kinds of things. But housing becomes an issue. How do we get people affordable housing when there's not affordable housing? If you're looking to sell, this is great. Lots of money. If you're looking to buy, it's a bit of a nightmare. Well, there is now a suggestion that the overheated market of the past few years hasn't alone been the result of just supply and demand and other traditional capitalistic economic forces, that government regulations have also played a very significant part in this. That it's not just the usual things we think about. I want to buy your house. I set a price. You set a price. And it's based only on that. According to the C.D. Howe Institute, regulations have driven up the price of homes in the Hamilton area by as much as $100,000 each. Regulations account for $100,000 worth of the price because these regulations make it more difficult to build, to buy, uh, and to create more houses. And in other parts of the country, the amounts are much, much, much greater. We may actually be lucky here in Hamilton. Ben Datchess is the CD House Associate Director of Research and co-author of this study. He joins us now. Ben, thanks for doing this today. Thanks for having me on. Um, real estate in its, if we want to call it pure, but in its purest and most unfettered way of doing business operates simply on supply and demand, right? You just, if someone has something, you want to buy it, you, if we remove everything else, it becomes pretty simple, correct? That's the great dream. Well, okay, and, but that's, theoretically, that's how it would work, that we wouldn't have any kind of external influences, it's you, it's another person, and you arrange on a price. But we don't live in utopia, and as a result, we now have, as you've outlined in this study, tons and tons and tons of rules and regulations that go into this that affect, if we want to call that the natural order. What kinds of things are we talking about? So, great question. So the entire premise of our paper is trying to measure just how far away we are from that world of uh, perfect supply and demand. Because when you, when you do have that, those kinds of deviations, uh, you're, you're going to see a major increase in the cost of, of, uh, of buying a home. So our, our paper is really all about, uh, first of all, measuring just how much of a gap there is between what it costs to build the house and what, uh, what people pay. And so in Hamilton uh, itself, that gap isn't um, you know, necessarily as big as, say, uh, Toronto or, or Vancouver, uh, where we're talking about gigantic gaps. But in, in Hamilton partic- in particular, there are a number of specific um, policies, especially around land use, uh, and especially land use around agricultural land, uh, that are definitely driving up the price of housing. All right. So, I mean, the simple part where we start with this is, uh, and I think everyone around here acknowledges this, we have more people in the area, we have more people in Canada, we need more homes. Is that a, is that a good place to start, that that's really where this becomes an issue? We need more places for people to live. Exactly. And so uh, when you look at uh, a major gap between what it costs uh, to uh, um, uh, live in a place versus uh, what it costs to build, uh, you know, the real cause of that is in many cases a lack of supply. When there's not enough uh, developers able to get access to land, uh, there's a shortage of land, the result is a, a much, much higher price. And so that's exactly what we're able to measure all across, all across uh, the country. And in Hamilton, uh, the, the problem is particularly acute with, um, uh, with the green belt. Uh, you, have the green, you have the green belt and uh, agricultural land uh, uh, zoning uh, that makes it uh, very difficult for developers to get access to 
uh, critically critically uh, uh, in supply, a short supply land. And we know from, what was it, a week or two ago, whatever it was now, when Doug Ford threw out that line about the green belt and then had to quickly walk it back, we recognize that at least in many corners, there's not a huge appetite for people to start building on that green belt. So does that mean that we have a shortage of land or does that mean that we have a shortage of usable land or what does that actually mean? Great question. So it's really all about the, the shortage of usable land or land that developers have access to. Uh, green, the green belt tends to be this very uh, shiny uh, object. It's a, something you see on the map, and people say, of course, uh, this is going to have an effect on prices. But it's not necessarily the largest effect on prices. Uh, if you talk to people in the sector, uh, they're going to say the real problem is uh, lack of, the lack of access to land between what's called the urban growth boundary and the green belt itself, because there's lots of land. People in, in Hamilton in particular know this. Uh, just on top of the mountain. Uh, the real question is that government policies, uh, the province in particular, has put in place a one-size-fits-all plan for the entire greater global horseshoe about just how uh, much and what kind of housing cities are allowed to develop. So that's really uh, the, the core problem. And so why do governments not open those up? If there is land and if it's not in the green belt, theoretically then it's land we could build on and help to solve some of this problem. Why don't we open it? So let's get into this in more detail. This is, this is part of something called the growth plan for the Greater Golden Horseshoe. The broad intent of this is to increase the density uh, and intensity of uh, how we use uh, how we develop cities. The idea here is that uh, denser cities are going to be more sustainable cities, and that's probably true in a lot of in a lot of cases, in particular around transit areas. Uh, so around transit stations, we want to make sure that we don't have uh, you know, uh, vast tracts of suburban single-family housing. That's going to make transit not sustainable. But across the entire GTA, out in the, the far suburbs of, uh, of, uh, of Hamilton, for example, uh, we don't need to impose these very strict density targets. It's just not going to, it's not going to really sustain uh, you know, large amounts of transit. Uh, it, this is going to have the characters of Suburban suburban housing, and let's let's reflect that uh, in our in our growth plans to, to allow people to get the kinds of home homes that they need. You're listening to the Scott Radley Show weeknights from six to eight only on 900 CHML. Ben Dack is from the CD Howe Institute, who has recently co-authored a study. Ben, you were talking before about the area between the green belt and the urban area, which is available, and we were talking about whether, why that couldn't be open. When they do, though, and you've written this. They make it, they drag the thing out. You have to go through all kinds of processes. It costs more for the developers. All these things cost more. And of course, those all get passed along to the person who ends up buying the house, which only makes the house more expensive. Exactly. And what we do is we uh, estimate what happens to house prices, not just for new uh, homes that are built, but the entire uh, housing market for single-family homes when cities decide to increase their uh, development charges, because that sort of uh, those sorts of things have a cost uh, to to home buyers, uh, whether you're uh, going to buy new or existing, because that, those kinds of costs uh, get uh, you know spread throughout the entire market. So these development charges, when you really step back and think about them, don't make a lot of sense. Uh, and here's why: so we want growth to pay for growth. That makes a lot of sense. We don't want existing. Uh, home homeowners, t- existing taxpayers, to have to have, have to subsidize uh, the uh, kinds of infrastructure that uh, you know newcomers are going to need. 
that we're going to get no support for new housing whatsoever if we do that. So what, what we should do instead, instead of charging a great big upfront fee onto, onto home buyers, uh, which is what we do with development charges, and, this, and these are mainly for water and uh, wastewater infrastructure, about half or, or so. That's by far the largest chunk. Rather than charging a great big upfront, upfront fee, it makes a lot more sense to uh, pass on to home buyers the, co- the cost of construction over the lifetime of that asset. Uh, you know, every time you flush your toilet or turn on your taps, you should pay for a component of uh, the, the cost of construction. Uh, we do the same thing with uh, your natural gas bill. We do the same thing with your uh, your uh, hydro bill, uh, even your cable bill. You don't pay for your upfront infrastructure, up the infrastructure upfront. You pay for it over time. You wouldn't pay for your house uh, all upfront. You, you you take out a mortgage, and we should be doing the same thing with the infrastructure needed uh, to service your house. So it's not an additional tax. It's just it's essentially a tax that instead of being paid in one lump sum, you get to ease off a little bit and do it over many many years. Precisely. That's exactly the kind of change that we need to have. You mentioned that one of the things that a lot of cities, and certainly Hamilton is absolutely in this area, there is a large, reasonably large, I would say, and loud segment that says we don't want urban sprawl, though we want everything built up for density in the downtown. Do these same um, requirements, these rules, these costs that end up affecting us, do they also impact on condos and apartments if you build them, or is it only single-family homes? Yeah, so to be fair, we our, our study does focus on single-family homes, uh, mainly because of data, availabil- data availability. Uh, there's just not as uh, you know, clean of an amount of data uh, out there to be able to look at uh, the effect of these kinds of constraints on, uh, on condos, but the, the, same, the same idea absolutely applies. When, rather than restricting uh, outwards, uh, uh, cities often are restricting upwards. And when you restrict upwards, guess what? It has the exact same kind of consequences. But I don't know. Now, I know that politicians at times, including one that's running for office right now, uh, say that they want to cut fees and cut taxes and cut these. I hear politicians say that occasionally. I rarely see it too, too much in practice. Uh, Do you imagine, I mean, is there any reason to believe that if we were to remove some of these regulations that this would actually translate into savings for homes? Or would governments just remove the regulations but find different ways to still retain those those levels of cash or costs, which would then leave us exactly where we were. Oh, yeah. We, we've gotten into a toxic political brew here with all the different uh, incentives for politicians. Let's just take a, uh, take a handful. Let's go back almost a year ago to the fair housing plan. Almost everything in there was all about restraint, restricting demand. Foreign buyers taxes, rent control. Economists after economists will tell you that those are not the, the core solution. They did not address the supply issue. And that's because uh, addressing supply takes a long time for it to work through the market. Uh, You're not going to see a a short-term political fix, which is not what a party looking for a re-election is going to look for. Another thing is that these development charges have have become crack cocaine for a lot of of lower-tier and upper-tier regional uh, local governments. Exactly. And so politicians are going to have a very hard time uh, weaning themselves off, off this addiction. Especially when so, they have no money. They're all strapped, so why would we want to give that back? But here's, here, this is the funny thing, is, and this relates to some of the other things that we at the CD House have been putting out, is that if you look at municipal budgets, you know, if you look at the, the municipal finances in their totality and looking at you know, their, their finances, including, the, these, uh, including these development charges and other, uh, other ways of financing upfront infrastructure, 
cities are actually doing gangbusters business. Because what happens when you look at when you look at uh, municipal budgets in the same way that you uh, that the province does it, uh, the province takes you know infrastructure like water if it, the province owned it, and rather than looking and compelling to finance it up front, it finances it over the long term. And cities right now are financing all this infrastructure up front, but then uh, uh, paying you know and then building all this infrastructure, and that's you know that's like getting money from your parents to go and buy your house. Life's great, yeah. Uh, but if, if cities started to finance themselves like you and me, which is that you know, you get it, you get a house, you buy a house, or you, you buy infrastructure, but you pay for it over time, uh, that's going to mean more affordable cities and better matching of who benefits with who pays. Ben Datchis, the associate director of research and co-author of the study from the CD Howe Institute, really appreciate the time today. Thanks for doing this. Thanks for having me on. Uh, that is, uh, again, a, something to think about. How do we actually charge people for homes and how are we squeezing people out of being able to afford homes? You're listening to The Scott Radley Show. Weeknights from 6 to 8. Only on 900 CHML. We bring in our buddy Bubba O'Neill from CHH. How are you? There's some controversy going on at our station right now, but everything is okay now. Oh, is that right? Is it about uh, Laurel and Yanni? Uh <laughs> No, it's more about uh, where is Meghan Markle's father? Will he attend the wedding or not? My daughter is in, well, will be in London for the royal wedding. Uh, she'll be our uh, correspondent on duty on the streets of London. I'll, I'll let you know as soon as I find out. You know, it's got... <laughs> I know you're hanging on pins and needles for the Meghan Markle news. I'm glad you said it, not me. <laughs> you're, not, I... you're not booking your Saturday morning with tea and crumpets and... Some champagne and whatever else to wake up and watch Megan walk down the aisle? Look, like, like Scott, I have nothing against the monarchy. I really don't. Um, I really do understand the Princess Diana, um, Charles' wedding at the time. You know, we hadn't seen a royal wedding in many years. Um, you know, there was definitely some intrigue. I also believe the world was a very different place back then um, in terms of the way we thought and you know, looked at the monarchy and the queen and all that kind of stuff. And um, believe me, I'm not trying to be anti-Canadian, anti-Brit, any of this. But I'm just, I'm baffled by the, and I know I'm probably in the minority, but I'm baffled by all of it. Because it's Harry. Come on, Harry is one of us. Okay, not really. Nonetheless, it's, um, you know, there's there's all kinds of stuff about this that people are excited about. I don't know, I... I I, I'll, I, I'll watch the highlights probably. I mean, I'm not. I, I'm, I'm like you. I'm an. I'm a monarchist agnostic. I couldn't. I don't. I don't dislike them. I don't love them. I'm. You know. Okay. That's all right. Have a nice wedding. I'm glad you're getting married. I hope you're happy. And uh, that's great. Anyway, let us move to some sports uh, where there's not so much happiness, because I am. I am still trying to get my head wrapped around this Joey Votto story. I know you had it on the news tonight. Uh, here, here, for those who don't know. They know who Joey Votto is, I'm sure. Joey Votto plays for the Cincinnati Reds. He is, I think, inarguably the best Canadian baseball player of his generation and in the discussion as the greatest of all time. Fergie Jenkins would be our greatest pitcher. Joey Votto is in the discussion, certainly, if he isn't. I mean, uh, Larry Walker would be there as well for the best player. He won the Lou Marsh twice. Uh, so he's doing a podcast with Yahoo Sports 
And he says, I don't care almost at all about Canadian baseball. I wasn't raised inside of Canadian baseball, really. I'm coming up on half my life being in the United States, working and being supported by American baseball. As far as Toronto and Canadian baseball, the country of Canada and James Paxson, who threw the no-header against Toronto, being Canadian, I don't care at all. They may disagree with that, but I couldn't give a bleep about that. And he went on and on and on. And Bubba, what I do, there's a couple things about this. First of all, I don't understand. He did apologize for it, but I don't understand why. Why would he say this? And I know we can't get into his head, but it's just it. To me, it's a complete mystery. I think he tried to do, to. Um, I know he obviously that sort of broke a little around twelve midnight, and like I mean, it was really starting to spread like wildfire. You know that uh, podcast last night. And he did an apology as quick as you can. <laughs> I mean, he's out and said the Reds are out in San Francisco, and an apology was uh, issued. And of course, he appeared on the two national sports networks really early today to make his apology. Now, one of the things that did strike me is that obviously there are some deep rooted feelings he has towards Canada baseball, even though he has rep- represented our country, but more so earlier in his career. Uh, did not make the Olympic team, was not selected as part of the World uh, Baseball, World World Cup of, uh, what do we call that, the World, World Baseball Classic. World Baseball Classic, and not being drafted by the Blue Jays. I, it, 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 it's obvious to me that there are some deep-rooted feelings that he has about none of those things happening and the fact that he needed to, you know, basically go away. And, I mean, is any, if anyone's been to Cincinnati, I mean, it, 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 it's a nice town. It's a nice town. I got nothing against it. Great ballpark, you know. Great ballpark, but it's nothing like Toronto in terms of you know a metropolitan area, and and you know and and just I think he wanted to be here. It never happened. Uh, it probably never will happen. Uh, and now he's making millions and millions of dollars, or you know, in the twenty, thirty million dollar range with another team that's not very good. So I believe there's some deep rooted feelings there that maybe that are bothering him. Uh, I think he tried to explain the Paxton situation that he was happy for him as an individual, as a fellow baseball player, but the fact that he had Canadian, he was Canadian, had nothing to do with his happiness. I, I, his apology was, I thought, as you say, it was very quick, and I thought, by and large, it was a pretty good apology. And I mean, look, I'm not, I'm not going to be the arbiter of what's a good or bad apology, but it came across to me as pretty genuine. I think, I mean, that's how I took it, whether he's just a really good actor or not, but I thought it sounded like a pretty genuine apology. But I just, even with what you say, and I I think you're right that he's got these deep feelings potentially about Baseball Canada, he is not, Joey Votto, if you've ever heard him being interviewed, he is anything but a dumb guy. He is not a dumb jock athlete. This is a guy who is a very intelligent person. And he, of all people, I mean, there are some dumb jocks, there are dumb baseball players, there's dumb every athlete, there's dumb people in our business. He had to know that when you go on a podcast and say those kinds of things, he had to know what this was going to lead to. He had to know that, and he chose to do it anyway. That's the part that I just don't understand. There had to be something more to it, and I just, I'm trying, for a guy who has been, yeah, maybe Baseball Canada didn't love him, but boy, the people of Canada and the voters for awards and everyone else sure have taken him to heart. I I just, I, I don't get it. 
well, he's a seven-time Tip O'Neill Award winner as the best player, you know, best Canadian baseball player. And I don't think anyone has won that award seven times. As you said, he's won the Lou Marsh Trophy. He's a he's a National League MVP. Uh, some say he should have been the National League MVP last year. Uh, this, as you said, this guy has tremendous baseball abilities, and you're right, he isn't a, a, a an in, a, unintelligent fella. Um, but what I do know about Joey Votto, and just from reading enough and from listening to people that deal with him on an everyday basis, and I'm talking about media that deal with him on an everyday basis, he can be hard to deal with, he can be moody, he can be grumpy, uh, he can be extremely opinionated at times. And uh, and you're right, I don't believe for a second that he's not a, he's not a smart fella, but I kind of, in, in some way, ways, I, I disagree with you a little bit. I think he didn't know what a firestorm this was going to, was going to ignite. The, my problem, Scott, I'm, and this is, I, I feel this way about a lot of things in life, and maybe this is, again, an unpopular opinion, but I'll state it anyway. He said what he said, and I don't believe for a second that he didn't, he didn't mean what he said. Oh, I agree. I and, think his apology and, and is to me. The, the apology wasn't necessary, and it, and Joey Votto comes off to me as a person that I feel the way I feel, and if you don't like it, tough. And that, and I think he feels like everyone should be that way. So when he came off with this apology, and you have to believe his agent was in his ear saying, "We need damage control immediately," because as I said, he's out in San Francisco, and those apologies were issued in this morning with all the hype coming out around 10 to midnight yesterday about what was said on this podcast. I know I heard it at about 1 in the morning when I left, when I left work, and I was you know, laughing because I'm like, I can't believe it. I'm hearing this. I think his apology, when I said that I think his apology was relatively genuine, I think he's sorry that maybe he created a stir in the way he did. But I'm with you. I think that he said what, and it's what I said earlier, he said what he said knowing what he was saying. This is not a guy who was, well, gosh, shucks, I don't know, what, you know, that anyone's going to listen. No, he, he, he knew people were going to listen. He knew this was going to be heard. He's apologizing for, I think, probably for maybe upsetting some people, but I, that, that's not the same as apologizing for the views that he held. And again, I'm with you. If you say those views, and I believe that what comes out of your mouth generally the first time is what you really believe. Absolutely. Because again, it's not, there's nothing in this that you can look back on and say, oh, I can see how a word here or a different word there, it's a slight misspeak, and I can see how he got tangled up. No, there was none of that mm, slight misunderstanding stuff. He said what he said. So now... I would encourage your listeners to listen to this, and because you're you're speaking the truth, as I know I am as well too. He was not baited into saying this. No, nope. he wasn't enticed into saying this, and he wasn't and confused. It, and he wasn't confused. And the question was, in fact, he on his own because he was simply asked one question as a Canadian baseball player: What were your feelings? You know, how, were you proud of, of James Paxson when he threw his no hitter? And then he went off, and he. In, in the answer, he also took time to say that this is probably going to upset people. Yeah, now I, I'm, you're, I'm sure you're right that his agent has told him and other people have told him. I think his apology is for something, and I think it's a genuine apology for something, 
but I do believe that he well, believes... So he doesn't become the number one hated can- first Canadian athlete in, in, in this country. Okay, so let's go there. Is he? Or is this one of those things where people just say, oh, he apologized and we're Canadian, so he said sorry, and so let's move along. I, 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 I think he wears this for a very long time. You know, Scott, and I, and I'm, I, I think time will tell. I think the Canadian public, I think there are people out there, I think there's people like myself and maybe yourself that, that are thinking, you know what, he said what he said, so be it, he's a ball player, we move on. Uh, I also have, I mean, Canadian baseball, Canada ba- baseball have, a, a, have accepted his apology and, you know, and will continue relationship. Now, is it fair to say, is it fair for me to say that Canada baseball have everything to gain by still being a friend of Joey Votto? Oh, sure they do. So, sure I they mean, do. So, uh, so yes, you want to maintain that that relationship, and uh, I, and I think this sort of attitude is that you know what? Well, Joey Votto's never been a guy that is you know ruffled feathers at least you know ever, and that he apologized and that it's apology accepted, and we move on. I just I think his does no their division they don't play against the Jays this year in the interleague play, but they will again, and I. He has been a guy when he has come here who has been met with warm, warm responses because he is a Canadian and he is so great a player. I really think that he is going to be shocked if he doesn't expect it already that when he steps on the field next time, he is going to get torched. He is going to get flamed by people. Yeah, well, I mean. Because, because you're right about what you said, but we also, while we're very forgiving, we are also at times very self not sure of ourselves, and we need, for whatever reason, Americans to know that we are good at what we do or whatever else. I don't even know how you explain it. Right. And when you have someone like Joey Votto, one of us, torching Canada baseball and the country, man, one of that, best. yeah, that, that's, he's not a nobody. He's not a nobody. This is a guy that carries some heft. And, and I, I just think people are going to say, wait, you know what? I mean, Joey Votto played for the Canadian Thunderbirds at Bernie Arbor Stadium here in Hamilton for a couple yep. of years. He used to go and work out in the winter times at the Redeemer University gym. This is, again, part of the reason why I just don't even understand where he was coming from when he says that basically I have nothing to do. I didn't get anything from Canada baseball. You spent tons of time in Canada playing on teams and traveling around to different tournaments and getting playing time. Those things don't happen. He doesn't get to where he is today. I, I, it, it, the whole thing just almost strikes me that I, I would love to do a test to see if he'd had his blood alcohol level above the legal limit or something when he said, I, like, I can't think of any other reason you would do it. You know, and I, I you know, and we tweet things and sometimes, you know, you got you to gotta really check before you hit enter. I, I tweeted that. I tweeted that last night. Was 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 Joey drinking? Like like I because I, I was so baffled by it. Yeah, by, that's right. By, you know, by the extent of that he just continued to go on and on and on, and actually after his little mini rant there, apologized to the to the interviewer that you know because like, if he he had some feelings to get off his chest and he did. So again, uh, the apology thing to me, uh, it, again, I'll accept it and whatever. And he did what he did. But I mean, we've been, you and I have been in this business for a long time, and have talked to agents and have talked to athletes and know that so- sometimes there's a spin put on everything. And I'm not being a conspiracy kind of guy here. It's just not me, you know. And, and I'll even go, you know what, Scott? I even talk about this too. Um, and I say this with the ultimate, ultimate deep of my personal respect when I say this. 
I, I even felt a little uneasy, and I'm not saying he didn't feel any pain, and I know he's done some things to help out others as well in this situation, but didn't it seem kind of odd to you that he was wearing a Humboldt shirt today during his apology? Uh, it's so difficult to say anything about around the Humboldt thing because you don't, you don't, I'm with you. You don't want to think that that's not genuine when someone would wear that. And I'm not going to cast any aspersions on someone for wearing a humble shirt and say, they didn't mean it. That's just a PR move. Like when Drake wore it at the Raptors, I'm, you know, a lot of people said, yeah, perfect, Drake. You just to try to get attention to look how tied in you are to Humboldt. Look, I, I don't know, but I don't... Because of what he said. Because Scott, of what he said, it looks awkward. It looks then like a PR move. Yes, that, that's, that's probably better said. And I don't know. He may have worn that. We don't see him every day. He may have worn that thing 60 times since the accident happened. I can't speak to that. But under the circumstances, what he is saying about how Canadian he really is, how sorry he really is, how he loves the people of Canada, to be wearing that shirt then, it did, I, 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 I thought the same thing. It did look convenient. And if he's worn that shirt 25 times before, I will say, well then, it's not convenient. It's exactly what he's been supporting all along. I know that he did on his shoes the day of the accident write on something about Go Broncos. Yeah. Uh, so it's not like he has been completely absent. And again, again, I got to wrap up. But again, this is a guy who he has done that. He has ta- he has taken on Canadian things. He's taken on Canadian moments and written yep. Go Broncos on his shoes when that accident happens. Why then go and flame the country when you have a chance to speak on a podcast? It makes no sense to me. It's just baffling. Yeah, because like uh, like we've discussed, you know, ad nauseum now, like that I would I would encourage your listeners, if you have not heard the whole thing, make up your mind on yourself. Don't listen to me or, or, or anyone else. It's it's you know have your own opinion here. Go to Yahoo. Listen listen to listen to what his words are. I mean, he speaks for about three four minutes. But again, if you listen to him, you listen to his tone, and I'm one of those guys, you listen to tone, I'm also one of those guys that say, well, generally, like you said, what comes out of your mouth the first time is generally the way you actually feel. And uh, obviously, he's not a happy fella, in my opinion, in my lone opinion, uh, with Canada baseball or someone or something is bothering him. For the record, I don't think it's ad nauseum. I don't think we've made anyone sick. No, but <laughs> just, you know, but no, but there may be people saying, you know, okay, enough, guys, go. Uh, on, I know. Ad infinitum. I'll take ad infinitum. It really. I'm just saying, it really has been a, a topic of the day in sports. Oh, absolutely, it has. I just, I just, you know, I don't know if we make people sick on this show. We might make them sleepy sometimes. I don't know if we're going to make them vomit though. <laughs> That, that, that's stretching it. That's, that's pushing pretty hard towards what we're doing. Uh, Bubba O'Neill, you can catch him tonight at 11 on CHCH. He'll be talking about the Vegas Golden Knights and Winnipeg Jets, I bet. And you know what else he might talk about? Joey Votto. We'll see. Bubba, thanks I, for the time. I might say it's six, no more at 11. <laughs> Have a good one. The Scott Radley Show. The Scott Radley Show. Weeknights from 6 to 8 on 900 CHML.